0: Welcome to the ATS podcast series. My name is Andre Zinchuk, and I'm a clinical fellow in sleep medicine at Yale University. Today we are going to be talking about how the arts, sleep, and sleep medicine are connected. We're fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Mayer Krieger, who is a professor of medicine at Yale University. He is a well-known researcher and educator. He is a co-author of the authoritative text for sleep researchers and clinicians alike around the world, The Principles and Practice of Sleep Medicine. Dr. Krieger has been fascinated with how sleep and sleep medicine have intersected with the arts and literature for decades and has published widely given talks and interviews on the topic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Krieger. It's a pleasure. Yep. And I just want to start off our discussion with uh, how did you become interested at the intersection of art and sleep medicine? Well,
1: um, the story really begins when I, when I was a medical resident. And, and the story began when I had a patient uh, who was admitted to the um, endocrine floor, and I, I was a medical resident at that time. And the guy was obese, and he was admitted with seizures, and um, and he was very sleepy during the daytime. And when I saw the guy... Um, he looked like what had been described a few years earlier in, in the mid-1950s as someone having the Pickwickian syndrome. So, um, we, you know, I looked up that, that paper, and in that paper they, they, they used the term Pickwickian to refer to Joe the Fat Boy, uh, who is a character in the Pickwick papers by Charles Dickens, which, uh, which was written in 1836. And in this paper, one of the things that they pointed out Was that patients uh, with this Pickwickian syndrome had hypercapnia, and that and that was the conventional wisdom at that time was that hypercapnia was the reason for the sleepiness of these obese patients. Well, my patient didn't have hypercapnia. He didn't fit the the description of the Pickwickian syndrome. And as it turned out, I had a a colleague who was a neurosurgery resident, and and, uh, he was in a building across the street in in the Montreal Neurological Institute. So we fashioned uh, sort of a very, very primitive uh, polysomnography system. Uh, I was not even familiar with the term at that time. And we saw that this patient stopped breathing, was obstructed, And what was more disturbing was that he was developing very significant uh, sinus arrest. And sometimes his heart would stop for like 10 seconds, and we now had an explanation for his seizures. And uh, as it turned out, uh, looking at this patient, and there was hardly any literature at that time, um, uh, I went to my attending physician, um, Nick Antonison, and basically said, look, I have a guy here and I think we need to do a tracheostomy in him to, to really treat him. And, and Dr. Antonison, who, who was a terrific guy, said, go ahead. And we, <laughs> we went ahead and did a tracheostomy in this patient. And I wrote up that case. And while I was writing up that case, it was actually the first paper I had ever written from start to finish by myself. Um, um, the, I, I went and looked at the literature that was available at that time and there really wasn't very much Uh, i kept on going back to the pickwick papers and i ultimately read the book from start to finish and i realized that charles dickens um, actually did a beautiful job in in expressing something that he must have seen somewhere an obese young person uh, who was extremely sleepy and in the book, uh, there are beautiful um, uh, lithographs, um, images, and there's one image where there's a lot of action going on in the scene, and Joe the fat boy is sitting there, and he's sound asleep and looking like he's snoring. And in the book, Dickens describes uh, Joe snoring, being sleepy, and, and also um, having um, uh, what we would call now peripheral edema. He said that the boy had dropsy, and dropsy is the old term for peripheral edema. So I realized at that time um, a couple of things. Number one, I knew nothing about sleep because there's very little that had been published about sleep, and I had to go back and, and sort of read you know what was available uh, historically and, and what was uh, uh, available uh, at that time, And and that was my interest. That's how I got started in in my interest in education about sleep, looking at art, because the image really told me that this boy had what my patient had. And led me to kind of look at earlier sources of where um, uh, scientists, philosophers, artists looked at sleep and uh, that was a, a, you know, that was a passage that actually led me to become very, very interested in the
0: field. So it sounds like it was an excellent start to a very productive career. And since that time, you, I know you've written books, articles, and given interviews and uh, published work on intersection of art and medicine and how artists have portrayed yeah. sleep and, yeah. um, and health and disordered sleep. So... Could you give us some examples of how artists have illuminated healthy and disordered sleep? Well, yeah, uh,
1: and and so if if you look at the themes that artists typically use uh, when they talk about uh, when they imagine sleep or they or or they paint an image of sleep, it really falls into one of several categories. One of them is dreams. Um, There there have been a huge number of artists, um, Picasso, Matisse, uh, a bunch of them who have written. Um, who, who have written, who have painted beautiful images about dreams. Um, Henri Rousseau, uh, his first great painting was about sleep and his last painting before he, um, he died was about and dreaming and it seems like almost every painting he ever did was actually a dream um, uh, painters uh, looked at mythology some of the stories from uh, ancient um, Greek and Roman mythology and there are some beautiful images that, that were done and and one of the things that becomes apparent is that when you paint uh, if you're a great painter and you're painting an, a person sleeping um, that takes, you know, you're, you're expressing maybe what they're dreaming. You might be expressing their distress if they're having uh, a nightmare. And and you have the opportunity to paint anatomy uh, and, and show the beauty of the human body. And in terms of other types of, of, uh, of, of images, the, the fact that sleep can be very restful, um, um, You've probably all seen Van Gogh's uh, painting of, of Siesta. Um, beautiful image uh, of two people that are sleeping uh, in the field, and and people looking at that uh, realize that that for him painting this must have been um, uh, very very therapeutic because he was going through a very very difficult period uh, in his own life. However, what is not necessarily widely known is that he actually copied that image from two other uh, painters Um, but in that era there was no notion of plagiarism if you copied someone's work that was actually you were paying homage uh, to them. There there are many painters um, and artists who have talked about um, sleep being a very dangerous time and um, there's a painting called the the Gypsy by by uh, by Russo, which is in the um, in, in the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York. It's a painting where there's someone lying in the um, in what looks like a desert. It's very ambiguous. You don't know whether it's day or night. Uh, you don't know whether the the gypsy a male or a female. And hovering over this gypsy uh, is a lion, a very menacing lion. Um, and you don't know whether this line is about to kill, um, the, the gypsy or somehow protecting the, the gypsy. And this is, um, really a, a dream image that, um, that he's really painted. So, um, and, and of course, death, um, there's this old story. In fact, it, the story was in old textbooks. Uh, it's not a story. It was a belief that when, um, when you, you went to sleep, you're, you kind of died, and the next day when you woke up, you kind of were reborn. And even in, the, in a, 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 as late as the 18, middle of the 1800s, um, many scientists didn't, you know, they kind of had this image that sleep was kind of like a form of death. Um, and and there have been artists that have actually painted um, a very well-known painting by Waterhouse of, of Sleep and his half brother Death, and and it's a very interesting uh, painting in that in the foreground you see um, a young boy who looks healthy asleep, and next to him uh, is his half brother who is very grayish and seems to be fading. Um, into the background, who is obviously quite dead. So there, so many artists have looked at sleep um, and and really given sleep their um, when they paint it, um, their own vision of what it means to them and what it means what it might mean to the person actually looking at the image.
0: So, it, you know, it sounds like there, there's multiple artists through the ages that have returned to depict this very basic human function. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the quotes that I like from your writing is um, is, is as follows. So that sleep is a necessity, and every person does it, or hopes to, but the actual experience cannot be shared. And that struck me as a, a, a quite a powerful statement. Do you think that there is a way, or or how do you think ART um, helps us share that experience of sleep and health and disease, and maybe connect us to our patients?
1: Well, it's very interesting. Right now, I just started teaching an undergraduate course on sleep um, at at, at Yale, and the the students who applied to take this course made up a tremendous, uh, of an incredibly diverse group. And when I mean a diverse group, there are people who majored in art, uh, who are actually artists. There are students who are uh, majoring in history. There are people that are majoring in biology. And they come from all over the place because they all have a different expectation about what they are going to learn and and what, uh, what important nuggets they may or may not get out of the course. But they all have a personal interest in this because we all sleep. Uh, all humans sleep. All animals sleep. Plants rest, and so forth. And and so there's this tremendous interest. So we all do. You know, we all sleep individually. We have our own dreams. We can tell people about dreams, and artists can can transmit their own dreams and their own vision um, about dreams to the you know uh, to the general public. And and it's not just artists. I mean, people who who are writers. Um, uh, Charles Dick, Dickens in *The Christmas Carol*, you know, he describes basically um, what is a tremendous dream uh, that that Scrooge has, and 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 you know, and and so Dickens wrote before we knew anything about sleep, but he described this a tremendous dream, and um, and so this is something that we need to bear in mind: is that artists and writers. They write about what they see, they write about what they feel, and everybody sleeps, everybody observes others sleeping. So it's not surprising
0: that that there's so much about sleep out there. Yeah. Uh, and um, are there certain works that, that you think helps understand? Uh, you, you know, Fetbo Joe, for example, um, is, a, is a very... Uh, an example of, of disease in um, sleep medicine. Are there other examples in art that helps understand uh, different disorders? Um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I
1: have seen some uh, ter- tremendous, besides Joe the Fat Boy, th- there are other examples that I have seen um and and um they're going to accompany this this podcast of people who are sleeping who obviously have a sleep disorder and the one that is the most that would be the most um uh, understandable to the readers of of this or the listeners of this will be sleep apnea um and norman rockwell had had a couple of covers that uh, of a of of people that obviously had um, sleep apnea, for example. And uh, there's a beautiful uh, sketch um, at the Yale um, Art Gallery, the, the British Art Gallery of someone who obviously has sleep apnea and an obese individual who's sitting in a chair, and, you know, hunched over and he is, is obviously snoring. So those are just some examples. The other um, a really interesting example, uh, uh, a, a painter by the name of Fusili, Henri Fusili, who has a uh, a painting that many of us have seen, called "The Nightmare," mm-hmm. and in this nightmare, he depicts beautifully, graphically, um, the the uh, someone who's in a state of sleep paralysis, and you see the loss of muscle tone, you see the arm drooping, you see on top of the chest uh, a devil-like creature, uh, because while this person is having sleep paralysis, they're actually uh, having the perception or the hallucination that they're uh, probably about to be raped by uh, by this creature and and so this is the kind of um, this is the kind of art that actually preceded our understanding of any of these um, conditions um, and and interestingly enough uh, Fus- the same person Fuzili, did a, a painting of Lady Macbeth in a, in a sleepwalking scene, and and again a beautiful piece of work, uh, and you see sort of the terror in in her eyes, um, and again this was painted well before we had any understanding of
0: uh, of of any of these conditions. So so it sounds like we are at least um, able to get a depiction of what what people have been experiencing without being able to put a name on it or yeah. put some scientific knowledge on it. And you've looked at images, you've been doing readings, you've been interested in how arts intersects with sleep and and how has this informed your patient care research or even activism in the, in the world of sleep? Right now in medicine
1: there there's this trend to, to super specializing to focus in such a way that that one has the feeling that a lot of doctors have never even stepped foot into an art gallery who have never read a novel uh, and and may never even have heard of Charles Dickens Um, and and so you know we're we are humans and we have to immerse ourselves not just in the sciences we have to immerse ourselves in the humanities because we have a great deal that we can learn Um, and and um, we, we learn from art, we learn from talking to people about art, is you can run into someone sort of anywhere at random who's in some field that you never considered would ever be able to tell you anything useful in terms of your own interest, uh, and all of a sudden they'll tell you, have you ever read so-and-so who wrote about such-and-such, and you kind of step back and you say, no, I, I don't even know who that is, And you and you go and you read it, and you say, my God, this is really relevant to to um, t- you know t- to what I'm interested. In. And it's kind of interesting because uh, this happened to me just uh, uh, recently, where I was I, I was talking to a, a colleague who you know who teaches one of the humanities, and 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 I was telling her that I was you know I was thinking about doing a lecture about sleep, dreams, and art. And she said to me, Have you ever read? Macrobius uh, and what his theories about art uh, about dreams were and I said never heard of the guy and and you know she led me to the literature and it turns out here's a guy in about 500 AD who described many of the features of, of, uh, of dreams that only sort of be you know became widely sort of accepted or known you know Fifteen hundred years later, practically, uh, with Sigmund Freud, that that dreams may have a hidden meaning, that dreams may represent pathology, uh, and actually described what would probably be um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is, you know, in, in, in roughly in the year five hundred. So, so there's a lot that you can learn by by reading and immersing yourself in the humanities, and not just. Um, not just in, in sort of what's been published today. And, and you know, it's sort of ironic that a lot of, um, um, a lot of scientists today, because they're so, I'm going to use the word married to PubMed and, and so forth, that they don't sort of recognize that there's a tremendous medical literature that precedes, you know, their own birth. And, and, um, and the best example I can give are, are a series of articles written about heart failure by, by Harrison of Harrison's textbook in the 1930s. That He wrote a series of, article, of articles, I think it was like 20 of them, about heart failure. And my God, everything that you know about heart failure practically was described in that set of articles. And, and so I encourage people not to get hung up in the today and what's, and when they're doing a literature search on something, do a real literature search and go back in time and give credit to some of these, you know, some of these guys uh, who worked hard 100 years ago uh, uh, and and were simply a stepping
0: stone to our knowledge today. Dr. Krieger, what are some of the potential ways for us to integrate uh, arts and uh, sleep uh, awareness and sleep medicine, and and what are the potential benefits of doing that?
1: Well, the, the potential benefits are that that, th- that there has been for centuries, sort of a, a division between the humanities and the sciences. And one of the things that we have to bear in mind and understand is that they are really the same thing. It's really a search for knowledge. And, and you know, if you go back 2,000 years, who were the scientists? The scientists were the philosophers. They were, the you know, if you, if you read Aristotle, Aristotle wrote about sleep. And he wrote about sleep and, you know, he talked about, about insomnia. He talked about dreams. He wondered where, where dreams came from. And he was wondering where dreams came from, like, 2,000 years before, before Freud. And so, so we shouldn't dismiss the humanities because they actually have a lot to tell us. And, and one of the things they have to tell us is that we're humans. And we shouldn't just focus on the hardball science, that there's a lot more to know and to understand. And there are a lot of contributions out there that may have been lost over centuries because people never really went back and, and, and got anything out of them. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, in the mid-'80s, I wrote a paper where I, I was trying to find the first case of what was probably sleep apnea ever described. And, uh, and I ended up, uh, it was sort of an interesting sort of sort of journey, because you have to go back and look at, at sources and and keep sort of jumping backwards and backwards, and I, m- my final sort of search backwards ended up uh, being the, the description of a of a of a tyrant of Heraclea, which was sort of a, a a place in ancient Greece around 325. Uh, BC, same time as Alexander the Great, where there was this guy who clearly had sleep apnea, as described in history books. And I had to go to um, University of Toronto to, to to get a piece translated from uh, from this history book. And here was a guy who was so obese that he only ever allowed his face to be shown. The rest of his body was was always uh, uh, hidden uh, um, in in boxes. And this guy, uh, the historians describe that he had trouble breathing, that he had trouble breathing during sleep, and in order for him to keep breathing, he had physicians who poked him with needles when he stopped breathing. And so, you know, so, so it's not like sleep apnea was discovered in 1975. It was discovered by other people long before and it, it, sometimes it takes a while for science to catch up with what the human eye sees. Potentially develop new therapies. Potentially <laughs> develop new therapies. Uh, you, you know, so now we have a therapy of, of, of stimulating the tongue and, and uh, is that any different
0: than what they did a couple of thousand years ago? That's right. Well, Dr. Kira, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us and for taking us through history, artists, and, um, you know, painting a, a, a quite a colorful picture. Of sleep and sleep uh, medicine as it relates to art. Uh, thanks again and looking forward to, to uh, hearing more from you on this topic. Thank you.